Hello, parishioners. We get questions all the time from people asking how they can have a greater sense of belonging to Woodland Hills Church, how they can feel more part of the community. And so we're going to try something here. We're going to do an experiment. Starting on the weekend of the 18th, we'll be entering into this Animate series, which is about the use of the imagination and prayer and worship and other things. We're really excited about this series. And during this series, we're going to start a temporary online community site. It will give you the chance to uh, participate in discussions about the Animate series uh, and network with one another, maybe even find some people in your area who also podcast from Woodland Hills Church. Uh, we think it's a, it's a real good opportunity. What we're trying to do is find out how much interest there is in this on your part and see whether this is something that's sustainable on our part. So we really want to encourage you to participate in this. Uh, the site will be launched on April 20th. Just go to the Woodland Hills website and you'll see it there and log on and be part of this uh, online community. So please consider being a part of this. I uh, look forward to chatting with you starting April 20th. God bless you. Praise God, man. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. Thank you, good sir. Happy Easter, everybody. Christ is risen. Now, see, if, if, if uh, we were more liturgical, you, you'd know you're supposed to say, he's risen indeed. So let's just try that. Christ is risen. Ah, sounds good. All right. That's good. Tis very true. Tis very true. My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor at Woodland Hills Church. It's really good to see you all out here this morning, as Norm said, on this beautiful uh, Easter morning. Uh, glad that you're here to celebrate uh, the risen Lord. It's uh, the resurrection is not just about life after death, it's about a, a, a quality of life we're to live now. And it's something that as Jesus followers we want to live all the time. Uh, Easter shouldn't be something that we think about uh, once a year, it's rather a reality we should be striving to live in every day. Uh, and yet it's good once a year to take a special time out to focus in a more particular way on that, and that's what we're doing here uh, this weekend. Um, we're going to have a Q&A on imaginative prayer. We're going to be going into this animate series here pretty quick that is uh, about the use of the imagination in uh, Bible reading and worship and prayer and things of that sort. And so we'll have a Q&A around those topics on Tuesday, April 21st at 7 o'clock. Paul, Eddie, and I will be uh, heading that up. So uh, you might think about coming to that. Well... We're going to take a break from the book of Luke today. If you're visiting, what we usually do is just kind of go through the Bible, and we're in the book of Luke this century, and we're up to like Luke 18. We're going to take a little break. In fact, because of this animate series coming up, we're going to be taking a break for like five or six weeks. So you, you, if this is your regular place of worship, you may be going through Luke withdrawals here for a little bit. But that's a good thing because we want to have a holistic approach to Scripture. And so for the purposes of this morning focused on the resurrection, I'd like to read from John chapter 11. I want to entitle this message, Take Off Your Grave Clothes. Take Off Your Grave Clothes. And it's uh, centered on John chapter 11. This is a story about Lazarus, who was a friend of Jesus, the brother of Mary and Martha. And uh, he was really sick, and they asked Jesus to come and heal him, but Jesus didn't come. So Lazarus ended up dying. And then Jesus comes. Uh, and in, as he's returning to the town, Martha, the brother of Lazarus, who is distraught, comes out to meet him. And we pick the story up in verse 20. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary, her sister, stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother 
will rise again. Martha, Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, and no, no, what I'm saying is, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she said. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And then they have a more discussion. Mary joins the crowd, and they end up going to the tomb where Lazarus is. And then Jesus says, take away the stone. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man. And Martha's always the one who's concerned about details and propriety. So we're not surprised to hear her say this. By this time, there is a bad odor, for he has been, he's been there for four days. And Jesus said, didn't I tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Don't worry about the smell. I'll take care of that. So they took away the stone. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Pray with me here for a moment. Lord, we don't have any trust, any confidence in human words, speeches, or anything of the sort. Our total confidence is in you, Holy Spirit, to be taking what we say, what we do, and using it to advance your kingdom. So right now, Lord, as these words come out of my mouth, however they come out, Lord, would you infuse them with your authority, and in your gentle but powerful way, use them to change our lives, to confront us. For some, Lord, who may be listening either in the auditorium or through podcast, God, but who really don't know you, I pray, Lord, that this message would be a means by which they come to know you and not just know you intellectually, but surrender to you. For others of us, Lord God, uh, free us from things that are keeping us from living in the full uh, power and dynamism of the kingdom life, of the resurrection life. Set your people free. Build your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. A couple things about this passage I think are really uh, important for us to focus on uh, on this resurrection morning. First, notice that Jesus and Martha, they're having this kind of conversation and, and Mary, Martha's distraught because Lazarus is dead and says, if you would have been here, then he wouldn't have died. But Jesus says, well, your brother's going to live again. And Martha says, well, of course, you know, at the end of the age, he's going to live again. And Jesus says, no, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Now, the question I want us to think about is, is this. Who talks like that? I am the resurrection. That's weird. I mean, it's very odd. He doesn't say, I've come to bring the resurrection. I've come to teach about the resurrection. I've come to point the way to the resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection. The resurrection is an event. How can a person be an event? It's like me saying, I am the Super Bowl. That's odd. It's very odd. Or I am Easter. You know, uh, I, I, I'm the presidential election. That's weird. It's like confusing categories. I am the resurrection. Uh, it's very odd to talk. What's, what's odd is that Jesus talks this way a lot. It's, at least as it's recorded in the book of John. Very odd. He says, I'm the resurrection. I'm the, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. I'm the bread. I'm the door. 
I am a lot of things, but it's odd. How can a person be a door? How can a person be the truth? He doesn't say, I've come to tell you the truth, to preach the truth, proclaim the truth. I am the truth. That is an odd way of talking. It's not normal. Strange. What's really weird is that sometimes Jesus talks this way, I am, using I am statements, and it's not followed by anything. He doesn't fill in the blank. He just says, I am. That's really weird. Probably the strangest example of this is in John chapter 8, verse 58 where uh, Jesus says to his audience, before Abraham was born, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. That's it. Some uh, translations insert he, as though that makes it a little clearer, but in the Greek, it doesn't even have he. I am. Ego me. That's it. Very odd. Now, I don't think it's that Jesus is confused about grammar. I mean, he's really mixing up past and present tenses here. Did you notice that? I don't think he's, he's doing anything like that. I don't think he's just like really bad at, at grammar or, or whatever. Uh, scholars agree that he is in a very profound way, subtle but very clear, referring to or alluding to Exodus chapter 3, uh, where the Lord is speaking to Moses out of this burning bush. And, Mo, and he's telling Moses, you've got to go in and get the people out of Israel, I mean out of Egypt. And uh, Moses at one point says, okay, well, you, you know, Lord, uh, who should I say sent me? Uh, what is your name? What is your title? What is your tag? And in the ancient world, to get the title of, of, or the name of a deity was one way to have kind of control over them. They kind of had a magical worldview. And so Moses here is trying to kind of get a handle on God. Give me your, give me your tag, well, your, your title, your name. But the Lord, in, in, uh, out of the burning bush, in verse 14 of Exodus chapter 3 says, Dude, uh, don't try to pin me down. I am what I am. So you just tell them that I am has sent you. That's strange. I am has sent you. And there's a lot of, you know, discussion and controversy about what exactly God's getting at here. I, I think throughout history, there's been a tendency to read a lot of Platonic metaphysics into this statement, but I'm not going to go there right now. The gist of this statement, however, is this. The Lord is saying, uh, look at Moses, don't try to pin me down. Don't try to put me in a box. I'm God. I'm the supreme being. I am that I am. In Hebrew, it actually has more the connotation of I will be whatever I want to be because I'm God. I'm from everlasting to everlasting. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I am pure being. I'm, I'm being itself, the source of all being, the source of all creation, the source of all beauty, the source of all truth. Do not try to put me in a box, Moses. So you just go down there and tell them the I am has sent you. And throughout uh, history in the Jewish tradition, with some justification, this was regarded as sort of being the supreme statement of the supreme being, where he most emphasizes his supreme transcendence, his otherness. I am. You can't put any kind of categories that box got in. Now what is really amazing is that Jesus, in this passage, and as echoed in all the other I am passages, he is identifying with the God who spoke through the burning bush. He's already saying to his Jewish audience, they all know the story, you know Yahweh speaking through the burning bush when he says I am? You know that, that supreme statement of transcendence? Well, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. Not just before Moses, that would have been good enough. But before Abraham, in fact, before the creation of the world, I am. 
He is making a claim to be the personal embodiment of Yahweh himself. It's an incredible statement. And his audience gets the point because it says in the next verse that they pick up stones to stone him. That was the punishment for blasphemy. And anybody who claims to be God is guilty of blasphemy in ordinary Jewish theology. So they knew what he was saying. They knew what he was doing. He's claiming to be the great I am. It's incredible. Now the question it presents to us here this Easter morning is what do you think about that? What do you think about that? See, there's a, it's kind of a normal thing to believe these days. It's kind of the faddish view of Jesus that he is a great human being. He is so wise and so smart and so kind and shows us how to love one another. Yay, Jesus. And, and that's kind of the, the common view out there. Uh, good, good, great teacher, a guru. And that is true so far as it goes. But see, here's the thing. How do you reconcile him being a good, wise teacher with a hundred of other passages where he alludes to himself, puts himself directly or indirectly in the position of God, such as this one? I am. Before Abraham was, I am. He talks this way all the time. I've come down from heaven. Most people are born. Jesus says, I've come down from heaven. Uh, Jesus says, uh, honor me the same way you honor the Father, John chapter 5. I, I want you to think about me the same way you think of, of, of God. If you see me, you, you see the Father. Who talks like that? That's not the way good Jewish teachers talk. Uh, he, he says, nobody knows God except me. Matthew 11, nobody knows the Father except me and to whoever I want to reveal him. Who does this say I think he is? He puts himself in the position of Yahweh. He says, I am the bridegroom. And every Jew would know that the bridegroom is Yahweh himself. You find that motif throughout the whole Old Testament. He's looking for a bride. And Jesus says, I'm that bridegroom who has now come to rescue his bride. Yes, he's a good, smart, wise, spiritual teacher, but he puts himself in the position of Yahweh. And so the question is, is he wrong or is he right? If he's wrong, then his good teaching notwithstanding He's crazy. He's, he's nuts. Go to most psych wards in the United States and you'll find people saying stuff like this. I'm God. Uh, you know, that, that's how crazy people talk. Uh, and, and so if you think he's wrong, then, uh, you know, you, you can't just sort of settle for him being a nice, wise teacher. You've got to also add, and by the way, he's crazy. And, and uh, you, you don't want to have too much to do with him. Or he's right. And if he's right... Well, then, saying he's a good, wise teacher is hardly giving him much of a compliment. If he's right, if he's right, then he's the Lord God Almighty. He is the great I Am. He is the creator of the universe, come down as a human being. He's the savior of the world. If he's right, he's the word of God, lamb of God, image of God, uh, perfect expression of the Father. If he's right, he's the Lord of all lords and the king of all kings. And if he's right, then that means we got to go way beyond just saying you're a good teacher and we think about him once a year or something of the sort. If he's right, if this is true, if this guy's not nuts, well, then the only appropriate response is to bow your knee before him and adore him and, and make him the center of your life and the reason for your living and commit everything to him. If he's right... He's deserving of our whole life, our whole being. He's the center of everything. If he's right, the last thing we should uh, be guilty of is thinking about him once in a while. If he's right, he's got to be the center of our existence, morning, noon, and night, 24-7, 365 days out of the year. The fact that he rose from the dead, to me, is a pretty clear indication that, in fact, he wasn't nuts. He was telling the truth. So my question is, 
What do you think about that? It forces this issue with us. You can reject him as nuts, and I actually respect that. People who are declare war on him, I appreciate the integrity of that. Thank you. Now I will try to convince them that he wasn't nuts, but I appreciate the consistency. Or you can bow your knee to him and make him the center of your existence. But the one position that doesn't make any sense whatsoever, you're kidding yourself if this is where you're at, is to say, well, gosh, he's nice, he's special, he's, he, he's, he's wise, etc., etc. And I'll think about him once in a while. I'll put him on the list of nice things about my life and once in a while go to church or something. That just does not fit at all. He forces us with the question, what do you think about him? Now, the second thing I want to bring out of this passage is this. Uh, they're having this discussion, uh, Martha and Jesus. And um, Martha's distraught, so Jesus says, well, your brother's going to live again. And, and, and Martha goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, at the end of the age, um, I, I believe that, that there'll be a resurrection at the end of the age. And in doing that, she's giving kind of the standard Jewish view I mean, most Jews, the Sadducees were the one exception, but most Jews in the first century believed that there's going to be a resurrection at the end of the age. That was sort of the creed. Wake, wake most Jews up at three in the morning, say, do you believe in the, in, in the life after death? They're going to go, yes, yes, I believe in resurrection at the end of the day. So Martha here is, is being just a good Orthodox Jew. But Jesus clearly isn't very impressed with her orthodoxy. And so he says, okay, well, Martha, you, you didn't quite get my question. Uh, yeah, okay, you believe there's a resurrection at the end of the age, but... Do you believe that I, I am the resurrection and the life? And do you believe that every, anyone who believes in me will have everlasting life? And Martha is able to say, yes, I do. Now, to believe in a person is very different from believing a creed. You believe in a creed, it's kind of a theoretical, intellectual thing. That's good so far as it goes. But to believe in a person involves trusting them. Do you believe in me? It means, do you trust me? Are you willing to leverage your life on me? Do you trust me? That's what Jesus is looking for. He's not very impressed with abstract theoretical belief. What he's looking for is a personal relationship with him, uh, a, a, a personal trusting confidence in him. And what it reveals to us and what we got to really take seriously here this morning is this. Participating in the resurrection and being confident in the resurrection is not so much a matter of believing the right things as it is a matter of trusting the right person. Did you catch that? You may believe that there's life after death and believe in, uh, that there'll be a resurrection, and that's good so far as it goes, but that's not what Jesus is looking for. He is the resurrection, and the only way to participate in the resurrection is to participate in him. And so what he wants to know is, do you trust me? Are you living for me? Are all your eggs in this basket? Are you surrendered in confidence to the fact that I am the resurrection? He's getting at the, the, the difference between an abstract belief on the one hand and a personal relationship on the other. And there's a world of difference between the two. And that's extremely important for us to, to, to understand. It's a little bit like this. Uh, I believe. Here's my creed. I believe that my wife is drop-dead gorgeous. I believe that she's a kind, loving, kind, and generous person. I believe that she's fun in a, in a childlike kind of way. She's really fun and she's cute, uh, especially when she gets a little bit frustrated. Uh, I, I believe that she's a great friend. She's got integrity. Uh, you know, she's a great mother and a great wife. I believe those things. I also believe that she'll be listening to this sermon. But that didn't affect what I said at all. 
Now, here's the thing. I believe that for sure more strongly today than I did uh, 30 years ago when we first got married. But even before I got married, I believed those things. And believing those things didn't make me married to her. It didn't bring about a trusting relationship. The belief itself wasn't a trusting relationship. For us to enter into a trusting relationship, like marriage, I had to act on those beliefs. Now, to be sure, I needed to believe those things in order to get married to her. If I believed that my wife didn't exist, for example, or if I believed that Shelly was a cruel, mean, vicious person, I wouldn't have married her. But believing that she was a kind, gorgeous, passionate, cute person, uh, it wasn't itself the relationship with her. I had to act on that. I had to go to the altar, and I said, I do. And she had to go to the altar and say, I do. And so we did. And, and now we have this relationship together where we trust one another. When you get married, you're really saying, you know what, you, I empower you uh, to greatly affect the quality of my life. Man, that is trust. And you're saying uh, that, that we are going to be in this thing together and we're no longer going to define ourselves uh, apart from one another. Um, our lives are going to be interwoven. That is a trusting relationship. And you needed to have certain beliefs to get there, but the beliefs are not there. You have to go beyond the mere beliefs in order to have that kind of relationship. And see, this is so important for us, I think, especially in a Western context, because there is this widespread assumption that Christianity is mainly about believing certain things. If you're a Christian, well, then you believe in Jesus, believe in the Bible, you believe, 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 believe. And maybe there's a few behaviors that are attached to that. You go to church and whatever. But that's what it's mainly about. And if you believe those things, well, then you're in. And if you don't, well, then you're out. It's kind of a widespread assumption, isn't it? I mean, that, does that sound familiar? As though God's greatest aspiration for all of creation was to raise up people who have the right opinions about things. As though God's greatest aspiration, greatest goal for all of creation was to train up a bunch of theology students who passed the test on the judgment day. What are your, your opinions about this? Now I submit to you that while, while beliefs are important, God's looking for a whole lot more than that. What God wants is this relationship. This is what this passage is telling us. What God's looking for is something like a trusting marriage relationship with us. The Bible says he's looking for a bride who doesn't just have the right opinions about him and about things, but rather who has a heart towards him, who trusts in him. God's looking for a people who don't just believe that he exists. That's a nice belief. Most people believe that. What God's looking for are people who base their life on his existence. What the Lord's looking for is not just people who believe that Jesus is Lord in some kind of intellectual, abstract way. Wonderful. But what he wants are people who, who love him as Lord and who are submitted to him as Lord and who pattern their life after his life because they confess him as Lord. What, what the Lord's looking for is not just people who, who, who believe that there's life after death or that there'll be a resurrection. That's good so far as it goes. But are you basing your life on that? Are you basing your life on the one who is the resurrection and the life? What God's looking for is a marriage-type relationship which goes a million miles beyond abstract belief. To enter the kingdom, salvation, this thing that's, that, that refers to the wholeness of God's life being given to us. To enter into that, it's about the heart more than it's about the head. God wants a relationship where he pours his whole self passionately into us, which is what he's done for us on Calvary. And now we, in response to the power of the Spirit, pour our whole self into him. And so the question now is this. The first question was, what's your opinion about Jesus? Do you think he's nuts or telling the truth? And if you think he's telling the truth, now the question is, what are you doing to act on that? 
Where's your heart? Do you have a trusting marriage-like relationship? Or are you cultivating a trusting marriage-like relationship with him? Are you moving in that direction? Because that is where our confidence of the resurrection lies, not in the abstract opinions in our head. The final thing I want us to see about this passage has to do with, and this gets us to the title of this message, finally. It has to do with Jesus saying to uh, Lazarus, Come out from that tomb and take off your clothes. Take off your grave clothes. It's a little interesting detail that I think is going to be important here in a moment that John adds into his gospel. Now to see why this is important, a little background would be helpful. Lazarus, uh, he, he, he came forth from the grave. He was, in that sense, resurrected, resurrected. But he didn't have like the full resurrection. He didn't have the kind of resurrection that will be happening at the end of the age. Uh, when Lazarus came out of that tomb, he, he had new life for sure. But he was going to grow old again, and he was eventually going to die. He was still part of this fallen, oppressed uh, creation where things tend towards decay. He was still part of this world. The first one to manifest the full resurrected life that God has in store for his people was Jesus. And when Jesus came out of the grave, well, he, he never got old again and he never died again. And it seems his body was operating by a totally different set of laws of physics because he could pass through walls and things of that sort. That wasn't true of Lazarus. When Lazarus came out of that grave, he was, as John says elsewhere about all the miracles of Jesus, he was a sign a sign. And it's, it, that means he was a pointer towards what was coming. In, in Lazarus, we see a foretaste, uh, a manifestation, a slice of the coming kingdom, a kingdom where, in which everyone will be raised and never die again and never grow old again, praise God. Lazarus was sort of an a, a, a evidence of that coming kingdom. That's how all of Jesus' miracles were. When, when Jesus healed the blind, he was... Not just blessing the blind, that was good, but he was pointing towards a time when this kingdom will come in which there'll be no more blindness. And when Jesus healed the lame, he was pointing towards a time when the kingdom will come where, where, where bodies will work the way they're supposed to work, legs will work the way they're supposed to work, arms will work the way they're supposed to work. And when Jesus fed the multitudes, he was pointing towards a coming kingdom in which there'll be no more hunger and there'll be no more poverty and, and, and the creation will finally be the way the creation was supposed to be. All of Jesus' miracles were manifestations, foretastes of this coming kingdom and were evidence that the kingdom is already pressing its way into this fallen world. And that's what Lazarus was when he came out of the, out of the tomb. He was a foretaste of the coming resurrection. Now, with that context, we can, we can begin to understand why it was important for Jesus to say, take off his grave clothes. Because Lazarus couldn't very well be the sign, the foretaste of the coming kingdom. He couldn't do that if he was wrapped in grave clothes. It just wouldn't work. The grave clothes in those days, when they wrapped somebody up, it was really tight around the, the, the head. To the point where you couldn't breathe. Which is okay if you're dead. But if you're alive, that's not going to work very well. So that's why Jesus says, quickly, take off him before he dies again. That would really be miserable. He raises the guy from the dead and he suffocates because no one got the clothes off him. Okay, so it's not going to work. You got to take off the grave clothes because to be alive means you breathe. You got to breathe in that air. Get those lungs working again. And in those days when they wrapped them up, up in grave clothes, they, they, you know, it was very constricting. It was like a mummy. 
which is fine when you're dead because you don't move a whole lot when you're dead. Although I'm told by a guy that I knew who was a mortician that actually dead people can move. Did you know that? They get gas built up and they twitch. Freaks you out if you don't know if that's what's going on. That's a little bit of free information, you know. know. An ADD moment brought to you by Greg Boyd. (laughs) But you don't move much when you're dead. You you know, so the grave clothes are, are very appropriate. But if you're alive... It's just not going to work to be walking around like this, you know, or whatever. No, you got to move. To be alive means you move. To be fully alive means that, that, that you know, you, 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 you dance through life. And, and, and there's got to be some movement there. So the grave clothes have got to come off. If this guy is going to manifest the coming kingdom and, and be alive and, and be a sign that points to a time when there'll be no more death and destruction or whatever, well, then he's got to have those grave clothes off. The third thing that is not unimportant is that the guy's been in a Palestinian hot tube for four days. And Martha's right. He's going to stink to high heaven. Have you ever smelled a decomposing body? It is like the worst thing imaginable. There is no odor like the odor of a dead person. Really. And so this guy's been in the tomb for four days, and his clothes, I mean, the stench is going to be on those, those clothes, which is fine when you're dead because you don't smell anything when you're dead, I'm assuming. But if you're alive... Well, to be alive means you mix it up with people. There's community. I mean, that's a central part of life, right? You're, you're around people. And you can't be around people for very long if you smell like a rotting corpse. So Jesus says, take off those clothes. Take off those grave clothes. This guy's got to live. To manifest the sign that he is, the coming kingdom. To put on display the beauty of the coming kingdom. The old clothes that were appropriate when you're dead have got to come off. Now see, here's what we need to see. If you're a person who's surrendered to Christ which means you've answered the first two questions, yes. You believe Jesus Christ was not nuts. He is, he is uh, the Lord. He claims to be. And you've now entered into a trusting relationship with him. When you do that, the Bible says there's new life that starts being pumped into you. God's life. And the Bible says that we are called to be, like Lazarus, signs of the coming kingdom. Lazarus is sort of a typology of all of us. We are called to put on display the beauty of God's coming kingdom. We still live in a corrupted world, an oppressed world. We still get old and die. You may have noticed that. But insofar as it's possible, we are to be, the Bible says, first fruits of the coming kingdom. The first fruits were the fruit that was picked ahead of time. It ripened early. And so they picked it and they consecrated it to God. And it was a way of saying, here's what the fruit is going to look like when it's fully manifested, when it's fully ripened. And it was a way of saying, we're trusting God to come through with the rest of the crop. We are, if you're a Jesus follower, we are to be consecrated to God, to live a unique kind of life that puts on display the beauty of the coming crop, that puts on display the beauty of this coming kingdom. As this new life gets poured into us, we're to to manifest it just like Lazarus. That's why the Bible says that, that, that eternal life isn't just something that we'll receive after we die at the resurrection. It is that, and that that will be the full manifestation of it, But remarkably, the Bible says we have it already. We have it already. Eternal life starts the moment you surrender to him and he starts breathing new life into you. And so Jesus says, for example, in John 3, whoever believes in me, remember, belief in a person is trust. Whoever trusts in me, has faith in me, has eternal life. Not just will receive it in the great by and by, but has it already. John 6 says the same thing. Whoever believes in me has eternal life. Paul says that when we were dead in the uncircumcision of our carnal nature, sarks, flesh, 
When we were dead, he made us alive in Christ Jesus. Not simply, he will make us alive. Yes, in the future, he'll make us fully alive. We'll, we'll fully dance in the kingdom and be freed from the corruption of this world. But even now, in this present circumstance, we are given new life. We're given eternal life. We are made alive in Christ Jesus. Resurrection starts now. Now, it's important to note that eternal life, zoe uh, in, in, uh, in Greek, it's not primarily about the unending nature of the life that we have in God, though it includes that. But even more profoundly, it's about the quality, quality of God's life. God gives us his life. It's zoe life. It's eternal life. And that means it has the quality of God's life, the quality of God's love, the quality of God's peace, the quality of God's freedom, the quality of God's confidence. And even now, right here, right now, we have that residing in us if we are genuinely surrendered to him. That is eternal life. And what God is saying is, I want you to be putting that on display. Be telling people, be showing people by how you live, by how you treat them, by how you treat one another, the coming kingdom, a slice of the coming kingdom. We're called to be the first fruits of this coming kingdom. But see, here's the challenge. And what it means is that if you're one of those who are sort of believing in Jesus but just waiting around for heaven to come, you're missing the boat on this thing. We're not supposed to be just sitting on our behinds in pews, soaking up more and more sermons. We're supposed to be out there in the world, salt and light in the world, manifesting the life of God in the world, being first fruits in the world, loving people in the world. What matters is that we don't, we're not waiting around for heaven to come. We're going to be the ones bringing it right here and right now. And we do that by how we live. Amen? This resurrection thing that we're talking about this morning isn't just a thing that happened long, long ago and that will happen sometime in the future. It's now, present tense. You have eternal life. And our job is to put it on display. But the challenge, and it's the same one that Lazarus had, the challenge is that all of us, to some degree, I'm thinking, still carry on some of our old grave clothes. Stuff that we've wrapped ourselves in or that was wrapped around us by others when we used to be dead in our sins. Uh, it may be lies that we believe in our mind, habits that we've cultivated, attitudes that we have, addictions that we have, wounds, scars that happen, false beliefs, all sorts of stuff, but we get wrapped in it. We either wrap ourselves in it or others wrap us in it. And it, it really, we wore it very well when we used to be dead. It was appropriate when we, dead, when, when we were dead. And we didn't mind that it stunk to high heaven. We didn't even notice that that was the normal smell for dead people. But see, there comes a time when, 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 when God says, come forth. Come out of that tomb and get rid of those clothes. Because what's appropriate when you're dead is totally inappropriate once you're alive. And if you're going to put on display the, the beauty and the life of Jesus Christ, you've got to get rid of those grave clothes. You've got to shed those things. That eternal life is inside of you. But if you're still walking around thinking like, 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 like a dead person, acting like a dead person, having attitudes of, the, of a dead person, someone who's not in a relationship with God, that eternal life may still be in there, but no one's going to see it. You can't smell it because what you smell is decomposition. You can't see it. You can't breathe the depth of the kingdom because your face is all constricted and you can't dance in the kingdom because your body's all constricted and you don't smell like the kingdom because you're decomposing. And Jesus says, take off that old stuff. Take, put aside that old stuff. Everything that's not consistent with the kingdom. Unwrap that. Get free. Start breathing. Start dancing. Start smelling, right, with the aroma of the kingdom. To manifest the kingdom, you've got to take off those grave clothes. Now, the thing is, you're used to them. You've always worn those. And you probably think they smell nice. That's just habit. Oh, we need to hear the voice of God and experience the power of God to take off that stuff from us. You know, when I was first a Christian, 
uh, many, many, many years ago uh, when I was 17. God did a lot of things in my life. I got unwrapped very quickly in a lot of ways, but not completely unwrapped. Because I still really had, a, I was wrapped up in, in lust and pornography uh, that I'd been involved in for the last six years. I was 17, but I started this when I was 11. And so I, I was really bound tight with this stuff. And I uh, uh, surrendered my life to Jesus Christ, but this stuff just kept on coming back to haunt me, and, and I was afflicted with it. I was wrapped up in it. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And see, to the degree that I was wrapped up in that, I think I really did have eternal life in me for sure, but, but I couldn't breathe the depth of the kingdom. No, I, could, I, I couldn't smell the fresh air and breathe deep that life-giving, uh, eternal life of God. I, I, I couldn't dance in the kingdom freely. No, I was bound up. I was constricted. And, and I, I, I certainly didn't smell like the kingdom. To the degree that I was wrapped in that stuff, I, I, I smelled like death, because that is death. And there came a point where, where I, I had to finally, Jesus could finally get through and speak to me and empower me to hear this and to believe this. To realize he's saying, Greg Boyd, you have eternal life. What are you doing walking around with this stupid, smelly, stinky grave clothes? I keep you all bound up. What are you doing with that? No, I, I've called you to be free. I've called you to breathe deep and I've called you to smell good. I put my spirit in you that you smell good, not like death. Get out of those grave clothes. And start shining with the life and the light that I've given inside of you. And there came a point when I began to realize that, uh, you know, I've got eternal life. What am I doing with this crap in my life? I'm a king's kid. I'm above this stuff. I've been made holy and righteous in Christ Jesus. What am I doing with this juvenile bondage sort of stuff? I, I've outgrown this. How come I keep acting like I haven't outgrown this? This is death, and I am a participant in life. I am way above this stuff. I've got unsurpassable worth because Jesus died for me. What am I doing degrading myself with all this stuff? And what am I doing degrading other people with all this garbage? I'm a, a, a being who has been filled with God's love. What am I doing contributing to the death of these folks who are participating in this pornography, contributing spiritually and sometimes financially to their destruction. No, no, I, I, I begin to see clearly who God is, begin to see clearly who I am, and who I am is not a corpse, I'm alive in Christ Jesus. I gotta start living like it. Take off those grave clothes. Take off the grave clothes. Shed that stinky, smelly, constricting stuff. Get yourself free in the power of God. And then begin to put on display, put on display the coming kingdom. It's a process we go through, and, and, and you can't always do it alone. In fact, God sort of has hardwired it into creation that most important things we can't do alone. Jesus says here to the friends of Lazarus, take off his grave clothes. If you're bound up, man, it's, it's very hard to get yourself free. You need others. You need community. Yes, you've got the power of God, and some things fall off you very easily, but other things, we need each other. And so it's so important that we're involved in community. And we invite people in our life. And if you're wrapped up with some stuff that is just death, death clothes, and you can't seem to get free of it, I encourage you to look into the refuge, look into small groups, these animate groups, start cultivating relationships where you can say, listen, will you help me unwrap this from my life? Because I'm constricted. I want to breathe the full breath of the kingdom. I want to dance with the freedom of the kingdom. I want to smell the sweet aroma of the kingdom instead of this death. Would you help me take off these constricting, smelly wrappings that are used to be, I used to wear them well when I was dead, but I'm not dead any longer. You've got resurrected life in you. The question then is this, I end with this. Do you, what, what is your opinion of Jesus? Is he crazy? That's fine, I respect that. 
don't know what you're doing here, but if you think he's crazy, that's okay. You're wrong, but, but you know, hopefully you'll change your mind in time. But at least you're consistent. And I really like consistency. Yes, th- go ahead. Conclude he's nuts. Uh, or do you think that he is, in fact, the great I am? Because if he is the great I am, you need to honor him even as you honor God the Father. And that means you bow your knee to him and surrender your life to him. So if you do believe that, have you done that? That's the second question. Do you have a trusting relationship? Because it's not about how the neurons in your head pop with your opinions. That's a precondition for saving faith, but that's not a self-saving faith. That's the greatest illusion in our culture. It's a form of Gnosticism where you're saved by what you happen to know. No, God wants your heart. Have you surrendered your life to him and are you moving towards a marriage relationship where he gets your whole being? And if he does have that, my third question then is this. What are the grave clothes that God is calling you to lose? What's the stuff about your life that doesn't smell like the kingdom? What's the stuff about your life that keeps you from breathing the full eternal air of the kingdom? What is the stuff about your life, your thought, your heart, that keeps you from moving freely in the kingdom? What is the stuff in your life that keeps you from manifesting the first fruits of heaven? One way to get at that question is, is to just ask this. What about your life will not be present in heaven when the kingdom fully comes? Because if it won't be in heaven, you should be striving to get rid of it now. Because then you manifest what heaven will be like. And in the power of God, and only in the power of God, only because of the eternal life he's given us, we actually have the power to live that, to be moving in that direction. Pray with me here for a moment. I'd like to ask the prayer team to come up. And uh, if you have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, at the end of the service, I encourage you to come up and talk to these folks. Or if you want to surrender your life to Christ, come up here and talk to these folks. Or you can stop by at the hub. Uh, It's just a matter of surrendering to him and start moving in a marriage direction with him. But my prayer is this. Holy Spirit, open our eyes and hearts and ears to see life and to see accurately the areas of our life that don't Uh, agree with the eternal life that you've put inside of us. Set your people free. Help us to lose the dirty, smelly, constricting grave clothes that we might breathe deep the kingdom, dance free in the kingdom, and smell like the kingdom. Set your people free. Help us be honest with ourselves, to reach out to one another as well, to help take off these grave clothes that we could put forth, shine forth brilliantly in this dark world, your love, your grace, your truth, your life. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. God bless you. Go out and build the kingdom.